Welcome to SLU Law Summations, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. Just recently, the city of Ferguson, Missouri, voted to approve the consent decree put forth by the United States Department of Justice. This 131-page document includes provisions that are meant to ensure protection of the constitutional and other legal rights of all members of the community. The document is also intended to approve Ferguson's ability to effectively prevent crime, enhance both officer and public safety, and increase public confidence in the Ferguson Police Department. I'm Corey Dugas, and today we're joined by Professor Justin Hansford. Professor Hansford is a leading advocate in the Black Lives Matter movement and teaches civil rights and critical race theory. Thank you for joining us, Justin. Glad to be here. It would be great if you could start us off today by explaining what consent decree is. Well, a consent decree is basically an agreement between the federal government, uh, the Department of Justice, and in this case, a police department, uh, whereas the police department agrees to engage in certain reforms in lieu of being sued by the Department of Justice. So it's basically a negotiated settlement process. And um, the consent decree process for police departments uh, is actually a pretty new phenomenon. Uh, After the Rodney King riots in Mm -hmm. the early 90s, a law was passed that allowed the federal government to investigate police departments and search for pattern and practices of discrimination and violations of citizens' civil rights on grounds of discrimination. And as a result of that, we've seen uh, about 30, 31, 32 consent decrees come out of these investigations where the Department of Justice asserts that they have found patterns and practices of discrimination, and they could sue the police departments, but in lieu of the lawsuit, they agreed to these consent decrees, which are agreements to change their their patterns and practices. So you mentioned 31, 30 about Mm -hmm. that have gone through. So how often are they typically used? Well, um, so in the uh, administration that we're currently under, uh, especially under Attorney General Holder, there was a huge uptick in the usage of consent decrees. So almost 20 of them have taken place just since Obama's administration has begun. Oh, wow. So it's a big uptick. And so they're being used more often than they used to be. Uh, there are many different reasons. Probably the major reason is political because mm-hmm. we have much more interest and concern about it now than we did, say, in the late 90s. Okay. So are they usually used successfully? So it's, it's all relative. What, what do you mean by okay. successfully? Um, so... Um, if, for example, take the LAPD's consent decree. Mm-hmm. It took them about 10 years to become in compliance with the consent decree. And uh, in New Orleans, uh, there's also a consent decree there where uh, many residents are complaining that they still haven't seen any major changes come about as a result of it. So police departments often fight consent decrees, and the cities help police departments do. In New York, for example, uh, Mayor Bloomberg fought against the uh, investigations of the stop and frisk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, so um, you find that they're only as successful as the political climate allows them to be. And the consent decree can be a strong tool to push for reform. But if police departments want to fight back 
and resist the reforms, then uh, if they're able to get political support for doing so, that can go on for a pretty long time. And what you find is in places uh, like New Orleans, like Cincinnati, like L.A., uh, major cities, uh, there is resistance. Mm -hmm. And it should be noted that, you know, the consent decrees are not asking for uh, the police departments to become these dream ideal police departments, right? The federal investigators have found constitutional violations and they've documented them. So you're, you're resisting against getting up to the standard of the Constitution, which is, I think, problematic um, in a major degree, you know? Absolutely. So this timeline that you're talking about for compliance, is that set forth in the decree or is that something that is maybe hindered by the resistance that's happening? Well, so there's a, usually a compliance monitor that's appointed. Um, these monitors are usually people who have been monitors before, mm -hmm. usually lawyers, sometimes former police chiefs are the ones who do that. And so they are the ones in control of determining how fast they think compliance can happen um, when you can, you should be able to go back to the court and complain about it. So remember, the consent decree is just a negotiation. Mm -hmm. but there's also a consent order, which is entered into by a judge. Here in Ferguson, we had Judge Catherine Perry uh, just enter this order recently. The decree was uh, agreed upon in mid-March, and in April, the judge entered the order. So... Technically, if you're not in compliance with the consent decree, you're violating a court order. Oh, okay. And so there's some leverage there to push these departments to affect change. Of course, the problem is, so what do you do when they're in violation? Do you automatically find them? You know, these police departments are going to say that they need that budget to effectuate the reforms themselves. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they have sometimes high price tags that they argue will be necessary for community policing or body cams or whatever sort of reform is called for. So it's a back and forth negotiation. Mm -hmm. So some of these things that you've mentioned, uh, the body cams and things like that, those are relevant to what's happening in Ferguson. Mm -hmm. So can you take us through the beginning of this process with the city of Ferguson and the Department of Justice and explain a little bit about what led to it? Right. Well, we, know, we all know what happened in August 2014. And the uh, police department, the police department of Ferguson, um, became subject to a Department of Justice investigation, which really began before the non-indictment decision even came out. It usually takes uh, many months, if not years, to finish an investigation. Here, it was done in uh, less than six months, and as a result of that, we got the Ferguson report, which detailed all sorts of civil rights abuses that were taking place, especially against uh, black residents. You had cases uh, where there's a, a charge called uh, manner of walking. And um, so they were, they were monitoring the way people walk. Wow. And I guess you can walk illegally in Ferguson. Mm -hmm. And 94% of those who were charged with that were, were black. Um, you know, so you have charges like this that almost seem to be reserved for blacks. And there's a high degree of discretion uh, we've got the use of policing for profit. Uh, there were cases where uh, at the end of the day, the police would come back from walking the beat and, you know, they would say, well, how many tickets did you get? 
and the person who got the most tickets, they'd all cheer and, you know, applause and uh, slap them on the back mm-hmm. because they were using those revenues to help to increase the budget for sometimes the court system, the police department. So it was policing for profit, predatory policing. Um, uh, so this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the um, some of the uh, violations that were happening, uh, racial profiling and traffic stops, racial profiling and determining whether or not to search. Uh, black residents were twice as likely to be searched by police when stopped. Um, and they were 25% less likely to actually have any contraband. So another important thing to keep in mind, uh, all this hyper-vigilant policing was taking place, it's not as if it was backed up by any data, which which tended to suggest that the black residents were more likely to be engaged in criminal behavior or anything. If anything, the data showed that they were less likely to be found with contraband, yet and still they were twice as likely to be searched. So, you know, these types of things are highly data-driven. It was a long report. And so, um, amazingly, the mayor of Ferguson, uh, Mayor Knowles, still is resistant to admitting that there were any violations at all. Uh, as a result of that, they, they refused to sign the consent decree when it first was um, uh, released to the public um, in February mm-hmm. of this year. Um, and even after agreeing to it, they still are skeptical. But um, that huge report set the stage for the negotiations for the dissent, consent decree. And that took place. You know, there's a lot of uh, discomfort because the negotiations, of course, took place in secret. Of course. Uh-huh. And so, you know, now when we get this 130 page consent decree that comes out and um, residents are allowed to weigh in sort of after everything is already done. Um, there wasn't as much uh, participation in the process as the residents would have liked. And so many folks, including myself, provided testimony at a fairness hearing um, in March, which is a hearing to determine whether or not the community thought that the consent decree was fair, essentially. Um, the judge listened to the testimony and then lowered her gavel and just uh, let the consent decree go forward as is pretty much. So, you know, we didn't get a lot of chance to have community involvement in this sort of long, drawn-out process. You know, your question about the process. But uh, it is something that has happened all across the country, and it, it does provide a lever for the federal government to have some involvement with trying to push forward reforms uh, when there are police departments who don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that there were obviously some points of contention with what originally came out. So what were those for both the Department of Justice and for the city of Ferguson? Well, so some of the, the points of contention were the things I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they included the laws, the local municipal laws that seemed to be unreasonable. It included the use of force. Uh, one aspect of the consent decree was... Um, a a new rule that would make sure that police are trained to de-escalate uh, interactions mm-hmm. and try to avoid use of force whenever possible. Um, that wasn't the case before. Um, there is a community policing plan that they're going to be putting together. Um, and, you know, there, of course, wasn't a 
a strong enough emphasis on community policing beforehand. Mm -hmm. And that's in the works now? Yeah, so that's part of the consent decree. Mm -hmm. So this is, it's listed. And um, so now the, the question is, is it going to happen? And how mm -hmm. soon will it happen? We just had a new Ferguson police chief who was installed yesterday. Um, and so a lot of these reforms are going to be the responsibility of this new police chief to push through. And so that's going to be part of the question. Will the police chief follow through on this consent decree? So what are the practical next steps in moving forward with this? Well, so um, the police chief has uh, a, lot, a lot of power over it. So mm -hmm. most of the next steps are going to be in his court. Will they implement things like this uh, neighborhood policing plan? Will they actually hold people accountable mm -hmm. for violating the terms of the consent decree? So as we know, the Ferguson Police Department is about 90% um, white, and, and you know, Ferguson is about two-thirds African-American as a city. And a lot of the police who were engaged in the behaviors in the Ferguson report still work there. People mm -hmm. weren't fired in mass or anything. So the same folks are there. And the question is, are those folks going to change their practices? Or will the police chief be willing to fire them if they don't? Mm -hmm. So um, that's, that's one major practical first step to think about. And then, you know, the second question, the Ferguson report showed that they were engaged in racial profiling and targeting. So the question is, are you going to pull people back from that? And if you find that happening, you know, will you reassign patrol cars to other neighborhoods? And will you um, stop giving people applause when they get a bunch of traffic tickets, yeah. things like that, you know? Uh, what do you do when a police officer comes back, they only have two parking tickets instead of 10? Mm -hmm. Is that going to be a problem? Are they going to be docked for that in their review? Um, so, you know, there, there are practical steps that the police chief can take. And so the question is, will he take them? Are, and will the community be able to hold the police chief accountable? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a, there are a lot of interesting dynamics to it, right? So Ferguson, in the middle of all the, the um, unrest, hired a PR guy named Devin James. Some of you may be familiar with that fiasco. Um, and it's just, I mean, he was African-American male, and it turned out that he had had a conviction himself for killing someone and all this stuff. So, you know, this, this history of Ferguson, of hiring people, you know, hiring black people on this idea that, well, they're going to come and give good PR, mm -hmm. that's a problem. And so the new police chief has been a PR guy for 20 of the last 30 some odd years of his employment down at the Miami Police Department. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the question is, is he going to come in here and make these real substantive reforms that the Department of Justice is calling for? Or is he going to come here and focus on PR Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, so that's uh, obviously a criticism that many people, including myself, have. But, you know, you also you want to give the guy a chance. He just got here and he hasn't done anything yet except swear himself in. So mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a lot of hope that he will take those pragmatic steps. So see, I'm long-winded, so I can take <laughs> up the time pretty easily. Um, so with these next steps, who's going to set the priorities for those? Will those come from the police chief? Does the community get... Uh 
to hear their voice heard and what priorities should be taken first? Well, yeah, we all hope the community gets their voice heard. Ultimately, it will be up to the police chief. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. will the police chief make the community's voice a priority in a, in, in a real tangible sense? Mm-hmm. Will he take their suggestions and listen to their suggestions, even if he doesn't like them, for example. Through your involvement in the community, is there something that people want to see happen first? Well, I, I think what people want is a voice and a seat at the table. So I think many people have been very vocal about the importance of allowing the neighborhood police plan to be driven by local voices and not this not the uh, same old powerful people Mm -hmm. and it's not enough to have the local business owner the police uh, former police chief some rich millionaire person uh, come together and say that this is community involvement you Mm -hmm. have to involve people who are not powerful people who are average everyday citizens and let their voices be heard so, you know, that that's one of the big questions. Will the community actually get a chance to have a seat at the table? And I think that's the main thing that people want right now. So what you're mentioning is moving forward with this is a true community partnership. So mm-hmm. thank you for coming on the show today, Justin. Your perspective on the Ferguson consent degree has been interesting and insightful. All right. Go slew law. Thank you for joining us for slew law summations. Produced by St. Louis University School of Law.